If you have your Bibles, grab them. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to be today as we continue in our series we've called Encountering the Messiah, uh, where we get a sneak peek at those uh, people Jesus encounters, and thereby we get to encounter the Messiah uh, for ourselves. Uh, We are doing this series really in an effort uh, to lean in and focus on Jesus as we lead up to Easter. So that Easter will be all the sweeter for having seen the, the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and all, and you know, some of the things that he went through before his death. So two weeks ago we saw that Jesus encountered Nicodemus, who, who he learned that, Nicodemus learned that to follow Jesus, you have to have such a radical change in your life that the only way to describe that change is to say that you've been born again. Last week we saw Jesus' encounter with a rich young ruler whose love of money kept him from embracing Jesus as Savior. And what we learned was that Jesus doesn't come demanding some of us, he comes demanding all of us. And so we must remove our false saviors, whether that be money, romance, kids, marriage, or anything else, uh, anything that's in the way think we'll, think, that we think will make us happy, because there is only room for one Savior in our hearts and lives. This week is going to be a little different, uh, because Jesus did not only encounter people, that is to say humans, he also encountered supernatural beings. Many times we read about how Jesus cast out demons uh, uh, and several times throughout the gospel accounts. But at the very beginning of his ministry, he has an encounter with Satan, with the devil himself. Uh, and we have a lot to learn from his encounter with the devil. Many of you might remember uh, from high school probably, you probably haven't read it since high school. Uh, maybe you did there, but you're reading uh, The Odyssey, uh, this great Greek myth. Uh, uh, about Odysseus and uh, his journey. Um, but along that journey, you might remember, there was this scene, this moment where uh, they, Odysseus is on a ship with all of his men, and they are coming near an island known to contain sirens. If you remember the tale of the sirens, they're like these mermaid creatures who sing these beautiful songs and allure uh, uh, unbeknown uh, sailors to their shores only to crash into the rocks. And so uh, he knows about the, the tale of the sirens, and he wants to hear the siren song. And so he tells his men to tie him to the mast of the ship and uh, for all of the men to plug beeswax into their ears so that they cannot hear the song and be lured to go that way. And he tells them to not listen to him or anything that he says until they are clear of the siren song because he wants to hear it so badly. He wants to hear the beauty of the song. Temptation we find is often like a siren song, a beautiful melody that lures us in, entices us, calls to us with its beauty and with its wonder, calling to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul, only to find that after tasting, we crash into its shores and it destroys us and destroys our very lives. And so temptation, we will find, is often like a siren's song. We jump into Matthew chapter 4 and we find that Jesus was just baptized in the chapter previously by his cousin John the Baptist. And immediately after Jesus' baptism, it says that the Spirit leads him to the wilderness <coughs> where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's what we're going to pick up. We're going to start with just the first four verses. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. In Jesus' encounter with Satan, we're going to find three different temptations that Jesus undergoes. Here in the first one, we see that Jesus is tempted with instant gratification. Jesus is tempted with instant gratification. Y'all, Jesus is starving. He's been in the wilderness for 40 days, and he's not eaten anything. Y'all, if I skip lunch, by the time I get to supper, I am not only hangry, and you don't want to be around me, but I am withering away, right? I feel like I'm going to collapse, okay? Um, and so he, but Jesus has not just gone, gone five hours without eating. He has gone 40 days without eating. The man is literally starving. And Satan comes to use his cravings, his desire to eat, to tempt him. He uses those desires against him. Now remember... This is a very high-stakes situation, Jesus being in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. Because if Jesus gives into even one of these temptations, if he lets his guard down but for a moment and succumbs to the temptation of the devil and sins, his entire mission fails. The whole reason he came becomes null and void. He would not be able to complete his task and go to the cross to die as a uh, substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Because he would have been blameless, and if he sinned, he wouldn't be blameless. He would not have been able to die for the sins of the world. He would not have been able to accomplish the task that his father sent him there to do. One mistake, one slip up, and it's all over, and we are all lost forever. This is a high-stakes game. It is a high-stakes situation. And so I want you with me for a moment to follow the logic of this temptation. Follow the logic of this temptation. The devil says, if you are the son of God, if, he's questioning him. That's how temptation often comes to us. It's not, oh, go do this. It's a, it's a question. It's, a, it's a, something to cause doubt. If you are the son of God. He is calling into question God's love and provision and care over him. The devil is calling into question, does God really love you? Does he really care for you? Because if you are really his son, wouldn't God want you to eat? If this God is really your father, would he really want you to be starving out here in the wilderness? What sort of father lets his son be so hungry? He's using the same lie our D groups just went over in week one. If you're in a D group, you'll remember this. That doesn't God just want you to be happy? That's the lie. It sounds like the truth, but it's a lie. Doesn't God just want you to be happy? If you are his son, surely he wants you to be happy. Surely he wants you to eat. Surely he wouldn't want you to starve. The devil wants him to use his power to turn the rocks into bread, use his power apart from the will of God to turn the stones into bread and be instantly satisfied. 
we hear in this temptation an eerily familiar question. This is not a new tactic the devil used. He's used it before. You'll remember the words, did God really say? The words the serpent whispered to Eve. Did God really say to not eat of the tree of the garden? Did he really say the lie he told Eve about the forbidden fruit? It is the same temptation. It is the calling into question God's providential care toward us. He is suggesting that God is holding out on them, just as he suggested to Eve that God was holding out on her and Adam, that he doesn't really want them to have something. For Adam and Eve, the lie was that God was holding out secret knowledge, that if they ate of the tree, they would become like God himself, and God didn't want that, and so he was keeping that from them. The lie was that God made up some rules. God made up some regulations. He made up some laws to keep them from joy. But the devil's offering it. And here, the lie to Jesus is the same. God is holding out on you if you're the son of God. Just make them bread and eat. Wouldn't God want that for you? You have that desire wouldn't he want that from you? If you're really his son, don't, don't, wouldn't he want you to be happy and to be satisfied and to be filled? Why would God keep things from you? Therefore, satisfy your desires now. Because if God is holding out on you, just take and eat for yourself and be satisfied. This is a temptation that every one of us should be able to understand. It is the siren call of instant gratification. And it is the siren call that says, whatever I think will make me happy in a particular moment is worth it. And I got to have it, and I got to have it now. It reminds me of that old commercial that is seared into my brain from childhood. J.G. Wentworth, 877-CASH-NOW. It's my money, and I want it now. <laughs> I remember the number. We want things that will make us satisfied now. Just as Jesus was longing for food, had the desires to eat, it is true. That just like Jesus desires this food, we all have desires, right? We all have cravings. We all have longings. And it is true that those longings and those cravings and those desires are even from God. It's not that even the desires are necessarily wrong. Often the desires are from God. They're good desires. Not only does God give us these desires, but he also promises to fulfill those desires. And here's where the temptation comes in. The temptation is to be fulfilled, to be satisfied, to be gratified apart from the plan and will of God. So we have a God-given desire for food, and Satan tempts us to overeat. We have a God-given desire for sleep, and Satan tempts us toward laziness and oversleeping. We have a God-given desire for sex, and he tempts us with lust and pornography and adultery and more. At the core of those temptations is the lie that says, God is not providing for me in the way that I want, in the way that I 
think I want to be satisfied. And therefore, so I'm going to go seek my own gratification apart from the plan and will and design of God. Do you hear the siren call to satisfy whatever it is you crave? Do you hear the beautiful, alluring call to forget about what God has said? Because maybe we justify it by saying, well, you know what? God's out of touch. God's outdated. God doesn't want me to be happy, it seems like. Because if he did want me to be happy, he'd want me to have this because I desire it. It is a siren call promising to gratify, but it also leaves you hungry for more. Some of you in this room thinking, you know, I don't know if I feel that. I don't, I don't think food or drink or sleep or sex or any of those desires is really calling me. And if that's true, you don't, you don't feel the siren call of those things. It might be because you are already feasting at the siren's taste. What I found in my own life is that it is precisely in the moments I deny myself something that I learn just how much of a slave to it I am. On the front end, it is easy to say, oh, I could stop that anytime I want. I could give that up anytime I want. I could stop drinking Mountain Dew anytime I want. I could stop, I could stop snacking after 11 o'clock anytime I want. And when I do that, all I think about and all I dream about is Oreos and chocolate pudding or Mountain Dew, whatever. It's on my mind all the time. Sometimes the reason we do not hear the siren call of temptation is because we have so embraced the sirens already. Not that Mountain Dew's bad. It is the nectar of heaven. But But like Jesus, I think sometimes we need to spend some time denying ourselves. It's a helpful practice to deny ourselves our cravings so that we can find out and make sure what our ultimate satisfaction is, is in. Is it in God or is it something else? Last Wednesday, some of you might know that Lent started. Lent started as a time the church for its life has uh, focused on the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness in this time right now. And people have fasted. You know, Catholics do it one way, but it's not just a Catholic thing. Um, but fasting in, prepa- in preparation for Easter. So I want to encourage you, you. You've missed when, you know, Lent on Wednesday, but that's okay. Not a big deal. To maybe over these next 35 days, let's start, whatever it is, to fast from something. It doesn't have to be food. From now until Easter. To see your craving around that thing. And when you crave it, to pray in its place. And to draw near to God, to be your ultimate satisfaction apart from whatever it is you think you should give up. Maybe it's social media, maybe it's food. I don't know, whatever it is. I encourage you to think about maybe trying that. So Jesus is being tempted to not trust in the provision of God. That God has made desires in him and God will satisfy him in the right way at the right time. Right? Uh, And so the lie... That if he was really God's son, God would provide for him. And God is holding out on him because he must not really love him. How does Jesus respond? How Jesus responds teaches us, too, how we should respond in the midst of temptation. Jesus responds with a truth from Scripture. Close to the Old Testament. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is not bread that will satisfy me, he says. It is God's word 
that will satisfy. Meaning, it is the promises of God, it is the truth of God, the provision of God that he has promised that is going to satisfy him and fulfill him. He eats bread, he just gets hungry again, but when you drink or when you eat of the word of life, you will never hunger again. And the devil's shortcut of instant gratification, he knows, will fail him. Well, if it is the words of God, he should trust them. Then we should look back and see just what God has told him in a chapter earlier. Jesus, before he goes through the wilderness to fast, remember I said he was baptized in chapter 3 by his cousin John the Baptist. But when he was baptized, you remember the, the spirit descends on him like a dove and the voice of the Father from heaven comes and he says something. And he says something really important. He says to everyone around and particularly to Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son. It's a declaration. You are my son, and I am pleased with you. It is the exact reverse of the lie the devil has just told him. The devil said, if you are the son, he's trying to call into question what God has clearly already said. Isn't that how temptation always works? He's trying to create doubt. Is God really going to satisfy you in this way? God's giving you these cravings. Does he really have a way to satisfy you, or is he just holding out on you? And maybe I've got something a little better. That is the lie. But Jesus tells him, I trust the words of God, the promises of God, and God just told me in front of everyone that I was his son, that he was pleased with me. And so I'm not going to listen to your lies, but I'm going to trust in the words of the Lord. You see, even when it's hard, even when I'm hungry, even when things are not going easy or the way that I want them to go, when my desires aren't being filled instantly or the way I think I should have them, it is the Lord in whom we trust. It is his word, his promises, his provision, his plan that we trust because we know that God gives us desires and fulfills them. God designed the world, right? He made it to function in a certain way. And what the devil is saying is have this, this desire outside of the designs of God which is a perversion, and God is saying, no, do it the way I've said, because I've created how the world works, and it's going to be most satisfying this way. But how do we trust the word? How do we, how do we know this? It reminds me of the Lion King. You'll remember, in the Lion King, Simba has run off. He's, he's living out on his own. He's rebelling. He's out not doing his kingly responsibilities. He's giving away the kingdom to his uncle Scar. But he has this moment where his father, Mufasa, from the stars comes and speaks to him. Do you remember what Mufasa says? He says, you are my son, the one true king. And what does Simba do? He goes home. He hears that sort of declaration that who I am and what you've made me and what my responsibility is. And it turns him around, turns his life around to go home and to set things right. In the movie, it changed Simba. In the Bible, that moment gives Jesus the confidence to win the battle with the devil. You are my son, and in you I am well pleased. And when we face, tem when we face temptation, when we hear the siren's call, we must look to the word of God, to the promises of the gospel, to know where our identity is. We are sons and we are daughters of the king of the universe. God is not holding out on us. He has the riches of heaven at his disposal, ready to lavish them upon us. When you know that you are a son or a daughter of the king, 
then, and only then, do you know that the rules or the laws in the Bible aren't there to keep you from having a good time. They are not there to keep you from being fulfilled or satisfied. Instead, they are there to keep you from tasting what looks good and sounds good and appears good, but actually destroys your life. It is tying you to the mast of the ship so that the siren call does not make you crash into the rocks. You see, God's laws are not meant to keep you from joy. They are meant to be guardrails in the lane of life. Guardrails that keep us on the path toward joy. God knows that sex is satisfying, but only if done in the way he has designed it to be. God knows that food is satisfying, but only in the way he has designed it to be. God knows that, uh, that all of our cravings and all of our satisfactions apart from God won't satisfy. But he alone has the key. Instead, instead when we hear the sirens call and give into it, it is like drinking salt water. It's like drinking salt water when you're in the middle of the desert and you are dying of thirst. It feels satisfying for a moment. It is wet. It is cold. It is refreshing. But it actually only leaves you thirstier, wanting more and more and more. And it brings a diminishing return with every drink. You see, any attempt to satisfy your wants apart from God's will leads to destruction, not delight. Any attempt to satisfy your wants apart from God's will leads to destruction, not delight. You see, instant gratification is short-sighted. Instant gratification is short-sighted. In many ways, maturity, the definition of maturity, I think, in many ways, is the ability to delay gratification, knowing that the thing you want will be better later. Immaturity says, i got to have it now. That new thing came out, i got to have it now. I want this thing, i got to have it now. Maturity says, I can wait because I know in the waiting it will be better later. The voice that always says to you, is this what you want? Take it. Have it. Be happy. But beware of that voice because that voice always comes with a hiss. But the voice that says, is this really what you think you want? Is this the thing you think you want? Well, you can't have it. That voice comes from a father who knows what is best for his children. Trust the voice that doesn't always give you what you want because the other voice the voice that gives you what you want doesn't care about you. Second thing, the second thing Jesus is tempted with is vindication. Jesus is tempted with vindication. The devil fails with Jesus on this first one where he succeeded with Adam, but he is not done. He's got another trick up his sleeve. Verses 5 and 6 say this. Then the devil took him to the holy city. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil takes Jesus on top of the temple. And he quotes the Bible to him. The devil quotes the Bible to him. right, And tells him to jump. Now this one is confusing to us because we don't understand what is so enticing about jumping off a building. Right? Doesn't seem very tempting. So what's going on? The passage the devil quotes is talking about how God is going to care for his Messiah. The one that he sends is going to save the, save the world. God will care for him. He's not going to let anything bad happen to him. And so the devil says again, if, 
you are the Son of God, prove it. Jump off, and if God catches you, you will know you're really his son. But it's not just proving it to himself, but to everyone around him. He's saying, jump, and if God catches you, everyone's going to see it, and then everyone will know that you are who you say you are. You won't have to deal with the, with the insults. You won't have to deal with the, with the slander and the mocking that you know is coming for you. Do this, and everyone will believe you. Do this, and everyone will see that you are exactly who you say you are. You can stop having to prove it. You can stop arguing. You can silence the, the detractors. They will know you're right, and they will finally bow. You see, it's more than just jumping off a building. It's vindication. It's being right and letting everyone else know you are right. Vindication is a powerful thing. Think about how hard it is sometimes when, when you know, or at least you believe, you're right about something. And everyone around you thinks you're wrong. And you just want to shout, listen to me. Just listen to me. I'm right. Open your eyes. And you get so frustrated, you go home and you stew on a conversation. You argue with people in your head and you play the conversation over and over again. It, you get frustrated and you just want to scream, listen to me. You want people to know you're right. It is how all children feel when their parents tell them to do something. And when they say why, they say, because I said so. And children are just like, that's not a reason. And you say, oh, it is. Have you ever felt wronged by someone? Have you ever felt wronged by someone and you wanted everyone else to know the pain that they caused you? Have you ever been in a bad situation and you wanted everyone to know that it wasn't your fault? That someone else is to blame. You were just an innocent bystander. Have you ever just wanted to explode because no one understood how you were feeling and no one seemed to care? Have you ever had the enemy whisper in your ear, go ahead, give them a piece of your mind because you're right after all. And they need to know it. Have you ever looked at your spouse knowing they were completely in the wrong and you made sure they knew they were wrong by some comment or some look or something that you knew would just help make them crumble? Because you did nothing wrong and you want to make sure they know you were right. Vindication is a powerful thing. And nobody wants to be thought of as being wrong, to be at fault, or not believed. Vindication is powerful. It is a siren song that lures us in and promises to make us feel better. Once everyone knows how right I am or how much pain I have experienced or how I'm not at fault or whatever, once people know, I'll feel better. Once I get it off my chest and everyone sees clearly like I do, I'll feel better. So often it is the reason that we go on social media and rant about something. We go on and rant about our political views and the nonsense of the other side of the aisle. We rant about our experience. We rant about our track. We rant about whatever. We go in there and just throw up our information to the world because we think in throwing our information to the world, it's going to make me feel better. And it does for a moment, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've just typed up something, right? And just in the typing it up, you feel a little bit better. And hitting that inner button to send it makes you feel even a little better. The devil tried his first temptation on Adam, and it worked. The one he tries, uh, he tries one on the Israelites, and it worked too. When they go into the wilderness, after uh, go back in time, right? The Israelites have gone into the wilderness after God has rescued them from slavery. They've come up out of Egypt, and God has given them water from a rock. They are dying of thirst, and God says, "Oh, that's not a problem. 
water from a rock in the desert, right? They're hungry, and God's like, oh, it's not a problem. Here's bread from the, from the you know, just bread from heaven. <laughs> they, get, they complain about meat. He's like, that's not a big deal. Quail fall from the sky, right? God is providing them for again and again and again, but they get thirsty again, and what do they say? They say, is the Lord not among, is the Lord among us or not? They are constantly complaining, constantly begrudging God. He's not giving them what they want exactly when and how they want it. And they demanded to God that he provide them more water. They wanted God to prove he was still with them. Even though the dude parted in the ocean, had like a tornado of fire to lead them. Like he's done all of this stuff. And they get to a point, they're like, God, you got to prove it again. You got to prove it again that you are actually with us. And so how does Jesus, uh, that, that temptation works on them, right? They, they grumble, they complain, they don't trust God. And so the devil is trying that same thing on Jesus. And so how does Jesus defeat this temptation? Jesus responds to the devil with a text from Israelites' time of failing in the wilderness. In that same time we just talked about. As if Jesus was saying, you tricked Adam, you tricked Israel, but you won't trick me. I know who I am. I know who my father is. I don't need anyone else to know the truth. I know the truth, and my Father knows the truth, and that is all I need. It was the reality that Jesus was rooted in the Father's love and rooted in the Father's truth and rooted in the Father's word. And because of that, he could look back to those truths and not need vindication. He could quote scripture back to the devil and say, see, I don't, I don't need vindication because my Father knows. That is, if, if everyone else knows I was right. Or if everyone else knows it wasn't my fault, or I was wrong, or whatever. If everyone else knows it, it's not going to make me feel better. But knowing that God's got you, that he sees truly, and that he's with you through ups and downs, when you know that, he, that you are his son or daughter, and that he's pleased with you, it changes things. You see, once you have the smile of God, the approval of everyone else in the room pales in comparison. When you have the smile and approval of a father who created you in the world, the approval of everyone else pales in comparison. There are some of you in this room, and you struggle believing that God really loves you and accepts you. You look at the failings of your past or the failings of your present, and you know God is loving and forgiving, but you doubt that he could love you particularly. Or you know, some, you know of some obedience, right? You know that there's something that God is calling you to do, some obedience he's calling you to walk in, and you need to be doing that thing, and God has clearly called you, and, and, but you're sitting out here looking for another sign, right? God said, I need you to do this thing. And you're like, yeah, give me another sign. Right? You're falling into this trap of, I, I need to uh, give me another, prove it again, God, prove it again. Show me you really want me to go do that thing. You want some sort of proof, like God catching you as you jump off the temple. I'm going to jump off here, God. If you catch me, then, then I'll know. Then I'll know you want me to do that thing. You're looking for signs. You want God to write it in the sky. You want to know his will. You lay in bed at night and you pray the sinner's prayer over and over and over again, wondering if tonight it actually took. You look for blessings in your life of signs of God's favor. But if you want proof of God's love and affection for you, of his care for you, if you want proof that you should do what he says, if you want proof that his smile is over you, then you look no further than the cross. The place where his love is on display for you. You must know that your identity is rooted in Christ and you will no longer need vindication because you have the smile of the only one who matters. And you have the smile both uh, when you're right and you have the smile when you're wrong. 
You have the smile when you get it right. You do everything as you're supposed to do. And you have his smile when you screw it up. And only that, only knowing he's your father and he's with you and he sees clearly and he's going to do what's right and you have his approval, only that frees you up that I don't need everyone else's. I don't need everybody else's approval. I don't need everybody else to know. But you have to know this father's smile to get there. The third temptation. Jesus is is tempted with a shortcut to success. He's tempted with a shortcut to success. The first two two temptations don't work on Jesus. And so he tries one last one, verses 8 and 9. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you. If. There's always an if in there. If. You will fall down and worship me. All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You see, the devil is showing Jesus his inheritance. He is showing Jesus the whole reason he came into the world was to win back the kingdom of the world to away from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He is showing him that the promise that his father made to him in Psalm chapter 2, that I will make the world your footstool. I'm going to give you the world. Jesus is making, or the devil is making a counter offer. You can have it right now. You can have it right now, and you will not have to go through the suffering, through the pain, through the betrayal, through the mocking, and the torture of death. You can have it right now. I'll give you your inheritance and the whole reason you came right now. I'll give you the world at an infinitely cheaper price. All you have to do is bow down and worship me, and it's yours. It's cheaper, it's quicker, it's easier, and in the end, you seemingly get the same thing. This temptation comes in all forms, right? It's cheating on the test that you didn't study for. It's stealing, because you'd rather just have it for free. It's making others look bad at work so that you get to be in the inner circle and get the promotion faster. It's buying a house that you can't afford. It's racking up credit card debt to get the clothes and the shoes and the phone and the cars and the house or the trip that you want to have that you think will make you feel good. It is what happened to uh, a friend of ours growing up. Uh, My mom's best friend growing up was the treasurer of our little football and cheerleading uh, organization. She was an average mom, a normal mom, an everyday mom. Uh, and she was a treasurer, and it was years before they finally realized and caught her that she had stolen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars from the organization. She went to jail, and she left her three kids behind, but what happened? It wasn't that she took the job with this scheme and plan to go in there and do it, no. No, she started with good intentions, but along the way, she heard the siren's call. Just a little bit here. Just a little bit more there. Nobody will notice. Just a little bit more here. No one will know the difference. Just a little bit here and I can pay that bill faster. Just a little bit here and I can pay off that debt. Just a little bit here and I can go buy that new car. Just a little bit here and I can have this and I can have that and I can have it quicker and easier and cheaper. I can get the things that I wanted in life. It wasn't that she was a bad person. It wasn't that she went in with some big scheme. It was that she believed the lie that the shortcut was worth it. And in the end, it wasn't worth it. Shortcuts never are. 
shortcuts are never worth it. The devil and Jesus stand on top of this mountain, looking out at the whole world. And Jesus heard the offer. No pain, no suffering, no betrayal, no torture, no death, no the Father turning his back on you. You can skip all the hard stuff that's coming and have it right now. Or you can follow God's plan and you can go through all the hard things. Be mocked, die, all the stuff. Have it, nobody believe you. That you are who you say you are. Have your very friends betray you, your very disciples deny you. You can skip all of that. And you can have it right now. And he turns and he looks at Satan and he says this in verse 10. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. He says essentially this, Satan, I will fall. Satan tells to him, all you got to do is fall down and bow to me. And he says, oh, Satan, I will fall, but not to you. I will fall, but not at your feet. I will fall on a cross. Because that is the plan my father has laid out before me. I know the plans my father had for me are hard. You know, we like to quote Jeremiah 29, 11 about a specific dude at a specific time. I know the plans the Lord has for me, plans to prosper me and all these things. No, Jesus, I know the plans my father has for me, and they're really stinking hard. It's really difficult. There's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of difficult days ahead. But they're my father's plans. And my father is good. And my father's plans are best. And my father doesn't just look 10 years in the future or 100 years in the future. He doesn't look at just a moment. He looks at eternity and he says, this is best. And I trust my father. With whatever plan he lays before me, I will suffer. I will be persecuted. I will die because my father is good and he loves me. Even though the road is hard and long, he knows what is best. And so we... Like Jesus can say, we know our Father is good. We know our Father loves us. We know that our Father is working all things according to his plan purposes for good. Even when I can't see them. And so the path may be difficult, the path may be hard, but I'm going to trust the Father's road that he's put in front of me and not take the shortcut. Because the shortcut that gets me something faster, yeah, it's fun for a moment, but the shortcuts never work out. The shortcuts never satisfy. You see, shortcuts promise immediate results, but there's always a cost to shortcuts, and it costs us more than we ever get in return. So how do we fight temptation? How do we fight temptations? I want to give you three practical things real quick. Number one, we're going to fight temptation like Jesus. We have to remember who our enemy is. We have to remember who our enemy is. The Bible says that the devil is like a roaming lion seeking who he can devour. He goes to and fro on the earth seeking who he can devour. He lies to you. He makes promises to you that he cannot fulfill. And they are a siren's call to instant gratification. Siren's call to to vindication, to shortcuts, to success. They give us temporary pleasure but leave you broken and wanting more. You must see your sin not just as a mistake. Not just as something you do sometimes, but as an enemy seeking to destroy your life. And only when you see the devil and your sin as that, will you finally begin doing battle with him. That it's not just a little innocent thing that you just kind of do sometimes. It is seeking to destroy you like a lion devouring a person. When you see it that way, you'll actually start doing battle with it. The second thing we need to know. Is we need to know where you're vulnerable and stay away. 
You need to know, particularly for you, where you're vulnerable and stay away. We are all wired differently. We all have different temptations. We are all more susceptible to some things over others. And you have to know what that is for you. you got to know what siren song sings to the recesses of your heart and draws you close. And when you figure what that, out, that thing out, you can't play games with it. You can't coddle it. You can't tame it. You run away from it, and you, you take your sharpest sword, and you slice its head off. If you coddle it, it'll be like that old show when animals attack, when the guy thinks the crocodile's his pet, and he's tamed it, and he can sit on its back and pat its head, and then he turns around for a moment, and the thing bites him and ch- chomps an arm off. That is our sin. Right? We think sometimes we can call I'm strong enough to control it. I'm strong enough to do this or do that. And it's not going to, I'm not going to fall into sin by, by, by putting myself in these bad situations. And then the next thing you know, you end up in a place, you think, how the heck did I get here? <laughs> well, you've been sitting on alligators, man. Like, it's just dumb. Just don't do it. And so, where are you vulnerable? Don't manage your sin. Put it to death. And three, Stop fighting alone. Stop fighting alone. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit of God was with him while he was fasting and while he was being tempted. And after his temptation, the text tells us that the angels came and were ministering to him. He has fought the devil and now he needs angels to come and minister to him. And Jesus did not fight alone. And if God himself did not fight alone, how much more do we need biblical community in the midst of our temptations and struggles? No battle is won uh, uh, with an army. Whatever sin you battle, you need an army. No battle is won alone, you need an army. The people in this room want to battle with you. The people in this room know what it's like to fight sin and temptation and want you want to battle with you. Let them walk with you. Find the people in your D group, in your Sunday school class, in your community, and start telling somebody, man, I need some help in this area because the siren song is so sweet and I want to give in. I need your help to fight it. But here's the deal. If I stopped right here and closed the sermon down, you would have some, some tools and some knowledge and some practical insights maybe about how to leave here and fight sin, fight temptation. And, and you, you might do well, right? You might say, hey, I know who my enemy is, and I'm not going to put myself in vulnerable situations, and I'm not going to fight alone, and I'm going to go fight vindication, fight self-gratification, fight shortcuts, and I'm not going to fall into these things. And you might do well for a while. You might do well for a while, but one day you're going to fall. Probably tomorrow. You're going to fail. Right? Join the club. You're going to fail, and you're going to get up, and you're going to fail again. So what do, you, what do you do then? What do you do when the siren song is sweet and you crash into the rocks, and he's got you in his grasp? What do you do then? What do you do then? You need to understand the most important thing about this encounter that Jesus has with the devil. That this encounter wasn't just for our benefit to learn from Jesus about how to fight temptation. It, it is that, but it's more than that. Have you ever asked the question, why did Jesus stay in the wilderness for 40 days? Right? Why 40 days? That seems, seems random. Why not 30 days? Why not 50 days? Why not 42 days? It's not random. There's a reason. The Israelites, they lived in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. 40 years. 
And for all those 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness, they were tempted by the devil. And they failed in every way. For 40 years, they were tempted by the devil and they failed. They grumbled. They didn't trust God. They, 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 they couldn't manage their hunger. They demanded food. They failed again and again. And so when Jesus goes into the wilderness, he goes for 40 days to battle the devil just as they did. He is doing for the people of God what the people of God failed to do for themselves. He is doing for us what we could never do ourselves. He is facing our very temptations, and he is winning. He is facing our very struggles, and he is not failing. But why? Is he doing it to rub it in our face? Is he doing it to say, hey, this is how you do it? Let's go? No. He is saying he's being more than our example. He's being our substitute. Did you know that the Bible in ancient cultures has this idea of the one for the many? The one for the many. The one could represent the many. So Adam in the garden, when he sins, he represents all of humanity. You are a sinner because Adam sinned. You are guilty because Adam sinned first. I mean, you sinned enough yourself, but Adam did it first for you. When the Israelite kings were righteous, they represented the whole nation, and God saw the whole nation as righteous. But when the king was evil... The whole nation was evil. When the king was idolatrous, the whole nation was idolatrous. Ancient civilizations believed the one could represent the many. And so when, an, when the Philistines bring out the giant Goliath to go and fight, they're saying, instead of having our armies go and fight, let the one represent the many. We'll send Goliath who you got. And David goes out and he fights. The one could represent the many. So when Jesus enters the wilderness, he is saying, I will stand for you. I will face the temptation for you. He did for you what you could never have done for, your for yourself. He faced the temptation of the devil, and he did not give in. So, when you place your faith in him, he doesn't just forgive you of your sin. He does that. He wipes it away. Past, present, future, gone. His blood covers it. But he does more than that. He actually makes you righteous. He takes his perfect obedience, and he gives it to you as if you did it yourself. And so now, when you're in Christ, this isn't for everyone. This is if you're in Christ. When you're in Christ, God doesn't just see you as a forgiven sinner. He sees you as somebody who went into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil himself, and you made it. You didn't give in. You beat him. He sees you that way. Not just as a forgiven sinner, but as someone who has always obeyed and always done the right thing. So when you're in Christ on your worst day, when you're in Christ on your worst day, you have the smile of God. And the same thing that he says to Jesus in his baptism, he says to you, this is my son. This is my daughter. And in you, I am pleased. Jesus accomplished that for us. Not just in his death, but in his life for you. Hear the words spoken to you and let them change your identity so that you can face it going forward. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I'm so happy with you. Only when you know who you are and whose you are will you be able to face temptation and not surrender to the shortcuts. Not surrender to the instant gratification, to the vindication. Because you know your father who has plans for you. Your know, father's plan for your joy is the best. And only when you know that, only when you know his smile, will the siren song cease to be so sweet. Instead, the melody of God's love will be all the sweeter. 
away from the songs of the sirens and toward the song of God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that you are a God who loves sinners. You are a God who loves sinners so much that you sent a perfect son into the world to not only model for us how to not sin, but to live a life of no sin and then to die a sinner's death in our place so that we could be seen by you as sinless, as perfect, as righteous. And God, many of us in this room, every one of us in this room, have siren songs, have, have temptations that sing to the recesses of our hearts and they draw us in. And we think, man, if I could just have that, I'd be happy. Man, if I could just taste that, I'd be happy. God, this morning, would you show each and every one of us that there is no perversion of, of, of the devil that will satisfy us. But rather, you who give us every desire will quench every thirst, every desire of our hearts will be made fulfilled in us by the, your plans and by your will. It's not that you're asking us to go without satisfaction. You are saying to us, don't take the shortcut. Don't play in the mud pies when I'm offering you a vacation at the sea. It's not that our desires are too strong for God. It's that they're too weak. And he's offering us so much more. As if you're here this morning and you know that you do not belong to God. You do not belong to Jesus. You cannot hear those words, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Then as we sing this song, come up this morning and grab me as we sing and say, Brent, I want to know Jesus. Help me know how to do that. And he will bring you home. He will take you right now. If you're here this morning and you've crashed into the rocks because you've listened to the sirens again and again. Man, confess it to the Lord. He will forgive you. And sometimes it's helpful to confess it to someone else. And let them speak the gospel over you. So if that needs to be me this morning, man, I'd love to hear that. But I'm not your priest. Jesus is. Maybe grab a friend, someone else, confess it to them. You got someone in this room that you've wronged or has wronged you, maybe you need to go to them this morning and say, hey. I've listened to the siren song and I felt like I need to be vindicated and I wronged you. Will you forgive me? Father, give us the strength this morning to know how to respond. Maybe we just need to sing this song and focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who forgives us and makes us whole. But God, would you stir our hearts to obey you? Maybe in some of us in this room, you've put something on our heart that we need to do a thing of obedience that we need to follow in, but we have been testing you, asking for sign after sign, looking for the right time, the right way, and we've been, really what we've been doing is just putting off that obedience. God, give those people the strength this morning to, to step out in whatever they need to do. Maybe it's go to forgive someone. Maybe it's to go to ask for forgiveness. Maybe it's to come join our church. Maybe it's to come be baptized. Maybe it's to come be saved. Maybe, maybe it's to finally join a D group, join a Sunday school class. Maybe it's to make something right that they've messed up. But God, there's obediences that you've put on our lives. Things you've called us to, we're putting them off. But we know that the things you call us to, they might be hard, they might be awkward, they might be difficult. But in the long run, they are for our best. God, give us the courage this morning to do them. Give us the strength, Father. Whatever you need to do this morning, I pray you would do it. God, give us the strength. In Jesus' name we pray, all those people said. Let's stand together.